So this is a panel on academic workers, worker student solidarity. Um, thank you all for coming. My name's Emily, I'm gonna be the moderator, um, and I'm gonna let our panelists introduce themselves, but I'm very excited about this panel as an academic worker at CUNY. Um, I think there is a lot to talk about. So uh, whoever wants to go first. Okay. Um, so, sorry, they'll speak for a few minutes and then we'll have a Q&A or a discussion. We only have a few people. I'm Amelia. Um, I'm the postgraduate rep for the National Union of Students in the UK. I'm going to talk a bit about that. I've come straight from the conference we have and I also have tonsillitis. So that, that has like two implications for you. One, if I'm not loud enough, tell me and I'll try and speak louder. And two, some of the stuff I said might be confused because I have kind of wrote it. I have a fever. So if anything is unclear, especially the argument, uh, do say. You can be as rude as you like. Um, <laughs> and uh, outside of that, I'm studying for a PhD in philosophy um, at the University of Essex, um, where I'm researching work and alienation. Um, I'm Ed Remus. I work as a social sciences librarian at Northeastern Illinois University in Chicago. And uh, in that capacity, I'm also earning a second master's degree in history and uh, using that as an opportunity to explore some of the historical legacy and contemporary resonance of um, socialist party politics in the United States and internationally. Oh, sure, yeah, try to project. <laughs> um, so the title of my paper is uh, A Eugene Debs for the New Left? Question mark. Subtitled, Why There is So Much Socialism in the United States, But No Socialist Party. So this paper examines an abortive attempt made during the late 1960s to found a socialist political party in the United States. This party-building project briefly united two leftist intellectuals who had, by 1968, come to consider themselves Debsian socialists. Historian James Weinstein, the project's lead organizer, and Paul Buell, its most pivotal recruit from the student New Left. A third man, historian Eugene Genovese, led the project alongside Weinstein and led it toward a vision that sealed its fate. Indeed, the project resulted in little more than five drafts of a vision statement titled Pre-Party Papers. My lar larger project aims to show how the party-building project's potential was simultaneously premised upon and constrained by the historical and political imaginations that informed it, by the ideas that inspired and ultimately confounded and divided its participants. These ideas significantly delimited the project's potential outcome. My paper engages the work of three historians who have written about this project, Jack Ross, Tim Barker, and Kevin Matson. Ross, in his 2015 History of the Socialist Party of America, considers this project to have been a genuine attempt to revive the spirit of Debsian socialism in the New Left period, and considers its failure to have been a function of residual Stalinism. Barker treats the project in the context of a broader New Left neo-Marxist revival around the journal Studies on the Left, and considers the project's neo-Marxist ideas to have outrun its organizational acumen, primarily insofar as the project sought to build a socialist party on a base other than that of organized labor. Matson, meanwhile, treats the project's founders as radical liberals, as liberals in extremis, symptoms of liberalism's need to correct itself, rather than as revolutionary socialists, per se and he thereby rehabilitates them to the liberal tradition. I argue that Ross is basically correct, that Barker is basically not, and that Matson only appears correct because of the project's failure, a failure which the project's leaders themselves subsequently naturalized. American socialism as an independent mass party politics has never recovered from the twin death blows dealt to it a century ago. First came state repression in the form of Woodrow Wilson's Red Scare, 
a blow from without for which Eugene Debs' Socialist Party of America was woefully unprepared. Then came organizational fracturing in the form of the socialist-communist split, a blow from within premised upon the expectation that the October Revolution would spread to Germany and across Europe to eventually reach American shores. That never happened. Any political ground seemingly regained by the American left during the Great Depression and the Second World War was lost again during the post-war years. By the early 1950s, both the long-Stalinized Communist Party USA and the rump Norman Thomas-led Socialist Party of America had become largely indistinguishable organizationally and ideologically from the progressive wing of the Democratic Party. Most forces for American socialism were thereby liquidated into the dominant governing political party of American and global capitalism. The concept of the new left signaled the depth of the interrelated crises experienced by the three aforementioned parties. The industrialization of the American South, facilitated by New Deal policies, gave rise to a black population organized against the very Dixiecrat segregation upon which the New Deal coalition was premised. The beleaguered CPUSA, seedbed for integrationist and other liberal progressive movements, was effectively shattered by the Khrushchev revelations of 1956, opening a space for an intellectual renewal of Marxism beyond the clutches of Stalinism. Perhaps the most promising party crisis of all was the 1958 takeover of the SPA by a strategically brilliant ex-Trotskyist, Max, Max Schachmann, and his talented protégés, Bayard Rustin and Michael Harrington among them. The Schachmannites used the SPA as a base from which to coordinate their strategy of realigning the Democratic Party, initially hoping to shift the landscape of American party politics into a terrain more amenable for rebuilding the SPA. The Schachmannites helped array the civil rights and labor movements against the Dixiecrats, who were soon pushed out of the Democratic Party as intended. Yet the Shacklinites did little to rebuild the SPA as a serious oppositional party, meaning that new opportunities for organizing a socialist civil society, such as the early 1960 student movement that emerged through Students for a Democratic Society, the successor organization of the old SPA's Student League for Industrial Democracy, oriented to the Democratic Party by political default. When the Shacklinites liquidated some of American socialism's most promising forces into the Democratic Party, the historical window of opportunity for building a viable socialist party out of the new left may have firmly shut. So thought an old left generation Marxist no less orthodox than Hal Draper, an erstwhile comrade of Max Schachmann's in the Independent Socialist League. By the late 1960s, after splitting with Schachmann over the realignment strategy and mentoring Mario Savio of the free speech movement, Draper came to conclude that the only organizational alternative to the microsect pattern that has, had historically plagued the Trotskyist and Marxist left was, quote, to build a political center which has as its goal the formation of the prerequisites of a revolutionary socialist party. Draper held any attempt to build a mass socialist party to be necessarily premature and destined to fail, but he also held that Marxists should continue to undertake vitally necessary educational work via a political center, the organizational form that would best enable them to survive the barren landscape left in the wreckage of Shacknight realignment. Draper's perspective was by no means universally shared, however, and the 1970s are now remembered, if they are remembered at all, as a decade of Marxist party building, which really amounted to Marxist-Leninist-Maoist sect building. Between the late 1950s moment of Shacknight liquidation and the early 1970s moment of rampant left sectarianism, however, stood a 1968 attempt to constitute a party of a different kind. In May 1968, James Weinstein convened dozens of American academics and intellectuals in coordinated meetings on campuses and in cities across the country to launch a socialist political party. Through a series of mid-1960s articles in his journal Studies on the Left, culminating in his 1967 monograph, The Decline of Socialism in America, 
Weinstein had rehabilitated the legacy of the mass multi-tendency and multi-strategy socialist political party of Eugene Debs, Victor Berger, Morris Hillquit, and Bill Haywood for a new generation of American radicals otherwise beholden to the old left's memory of the popular front. Weinstein now proposed to lead academics such as Eugene Genovese and his political protege Christopher Lash in the task of making history in the second sense of the term. Around their core partnership, Weinstein and Genovese recruited a constellation of geographically and ideologically disparate leftist luminaries. Historians such as William Appleman Williams, John Kamet, Jesse Lemish, and David Horowitz, University of Wisconsin students Mary Jo Buell, Paul Buell, Martin Sklar, Ronald Radosh, and James Gilbert, former communists such as Mel Rothenberg and Garl Perovitz, and emerging intellectuals such as Barbara and John Ehrenreich, Naomi Weistein, and Saul Landau. Also involved, albeit more briefly, were influential new left figures such as Mario Savio and Martin Nikolaus. Weinstein and Genovese sought first to organize these intellectuals into a kind of vanguard, and then with them to organize a socialist political party. The group clarified its vision through articles and interviews in mass readership publications, teachings on campuses across the country, and five unpublished drafts of a neo-Marxist Gramscian document titled Pre-Party Papers. As the project's thinking evolved, and especially in the wake of the 1968 Democratic Convention, a faction around Genovese and Lash hoped to build the party's constituency by tacking to the social democratic right, recruiting dejected followers of Democratic presidential candidate Eugene McCarthy, unaffiliated socialists of all ages, and all others who identified neither with the recklessly militant anti-intellectual extremism of the movement, nor with the patent conservatism of the establishment status quo. Weinstein, meanwhile, tacked left in hopes of recruiting the radicalizing student movement, despite certain troubling manifestations of anti-intellectualism within it. The, groups, the group ultimately split over political strategy. Would the party take up electoral politics once it established some base and vision, or would it rely solely upon direct action and di direct democracy, the tactics preferred by the student movement, on the theory that any electoral work would inevitably result in the political compromises associated with Michael Harrington? The group remained at a standstill and collapsed amidst internal infighting by May 1969. Having presented the historiography, the background, and the basic story, I'll briefly sketch three central characters, Genovese, Weinstein, and Buell, in hopes of showing how each of their visions simultaneously recaptured and obscured politically viable features of Debsian socialism. Genovese's 1967 essay on Antonio Gramsci, a review of Kamet's scholarship, did much to lodge Gramsci's ideas in the, in the minds of the American New Left. Yet Gramsci, in Genovese's hands, appears to have been more of a liability than an asset to the task of socialist party building. Genovese largely failed to recover Gramsci as a radical figure emerging out of the second international party model, a figure who was, whose ideas were premised, many of whose ideas at least, were premised upon the existence of a painstakingly organized proletarian socialist civil society, including hundreds or thousands of cultural, intellectual, educational and journalistic institutions. A socialist civil society which had, in the United States, long been liquidated by the 1960s. As such, Genovese advocated for building the party through acts of mass cultural intellectual propaganda, making a big ideological splash before a mass readership, unmoored from any organized civil social constituency. Knowing that student radicals would grow up and get professional managerial or academic jobs, Genovese settled for a vision of the supposedly counter-hegemonic long march through the institutions that has now brought generations of American socialists no closer to building a socialist political party. Nevertheless, the Second International was also infused with the spirit of Kautskyan patience, to quote Mike McNair, envisioning socialist party building as a decades-long prospect. 
And an echo of this patience can be heard in a letter that Genovese wrote in the wake of the 68 convention, quote, the more radical types will soon find, will find soon enough that the US state is not a joke. When they are smashed, we shall pick up the best while the worst who are not dead or in jail will move to acid or worse. The day of reckoning for the new left imbecility is about to arrive and we must prepare to take different ground. Everything, in my opinion, is based on this estimate. I expect a long period of reaction, defeat, and intense persecution, and I think we must begin in such a way as to prepare for it. To put it plainly, I think we must cement our right flank and cut bait on the left. The conventional narrative of what happened next over the decades-long fallout from the new left's 1968-69 political crisis point holds that Genovese and Lash eventually drifted rightwards, whereas the others, Weinstein, Buell, Ehrenreich, and the rest, remained respectably loyal to the typically democratic socialist left. It is indeed true that Genovese became an outspoken conservative reactionary rightist during his final decades, and that Lash's brilliant career closed with notes of an oppositional populism amenable to left and right equally. Yet here we must bear in mind Jack Ross's insight, shared by Lash during the 1970s, that to work in or around the Democratic Party always represented a rightward turn for American socialism. To this one must add Ross's insight that the major reactionary wing of U.S. politics through the mid-century, including the Midwestern La Follette insurgency, was simultaneously the natural constituency for an American party of social democracy, although the SPA never succeeded in capturing it. Genovese and Lash had their eyes on the only potentially reactionary constituency for a socialist party of their time, but they knew nothing of how to organize it for socialism. If Genovese's vision for the Socialist Party risked a kind of cultural intellectual idealism, Weinstein's vision for the party risked a kind of electoralism, an electoralism that similarly neglected the second international conception of building a socialist party through organizing a socialist civil society. Although Weinstein shared with Genovese a youth background in the CPUSA, Weinstein's critique of Stalinism extended not only to the opportunism of the Popular Front and the specious character of the gains of the 30s, but also to the CP's lionization of the IWW, an industrial union organizing, potentially cutting against the tasks of civil social organizing as such. Weinstein took the sectarianism that had played the Trotskyist and Marxist-Leninist American left to be no less of a dead end than pop front opportunism, although he credited James B. Cannon, uh, an influential American Trotskyist leader, with embodying more of Lenin's spirit than Cannon's Stalinist critics. Yet Weinstein reached for life to the legacy of Victor Berger, leader of the SPA's Milwaukee-based political machine, variously described as municipal socialist, constructive socialist, and by its opponents, sewer socialist. Though his appeal to fund this project was unsuccessful, Weinstein envisioned a biography of Berger as the next logical step following upon his monograph on the SPA. And the only major political experience he brought to his party-building project was his somewhat promising, albeit unsuccessful, 1966 run for a local municipal office in New York City. When it became clear that Mario Savio would not join the project despite his initial interest, the group's most promising link to recruiting the student new left became Paul Buell, then a Madison-based graduate student and editor of Radical America, a younger generation's successor to successor journal to studies on the left. Buell had been educated years earlier by the Socialist Labor Party in the legacy of Daniel de Leon. Like Weinstein, Buell was attracted to the multi-tendency decentralization of the Debsian party model, but he followed his de Leonist roots in viewing the party's chief task as that of organizing the unorganized, and he thus defended the legacy of the IWW in an early 1968 exchange with Weinstein on the meaning of Debsian socialism. 
Concerned over Weinstein's electoralism and strongly alienated by Genovese's intellectual idealism, Buell never fully committed to the project. He expected the movement to grow and grow without end, and Buell was therefore relatively unmoved by the task of building a socialist party to lead it. Unlike Genovese, Buell was completely shocked by the New Left movement's early 1970s demise. In the decades that followed, Buell eventually made peace with Weinstein's electoralism, joining the DSA in 1984. Weinstein, meanwhile, meanwhile, made peace with Buell's movementism, founding the progressive labor journal in these times in 1973, content as he had not been before to follow the labor movement into the political orbit of the Democratic Party. The first name to appear on the cover of Buell's 2019 graphic biography of Eugene Debs, nestled in minuscule font above the name of Debs himself, is that of Bernie Sanders. Sanders blurbs Debs as the most effective and popular leader that the American working class has ever had. And Buell returns the favor by framing Sanders in his biography as Debs' political inheritor. Readers will follow Buell in drawing further comparisons. Both men show that it is possible to run in a national election as an open socialist, that the electoral field can be used to popularize the idea of socialism, and that this idea is not too European to take root in American soil. Readers unfamiliar with Debs' concept of the class struggle, a struggle, a concept which, for Debs as for Marx, refers specifically to the struggle of a proletarian socialist political party opposed to all capitalist parties, could be forgiven for concluding with Buell that if Debs were alive today, he would embrace Michael Harrington's democratic socialist strategy of tilting the Democratic Party leftward. Buell's readers will remain similarly unaware that Debs, that quote, Debs learned the basic essentials from Kautsky, the best popularizer of Marxism known in this country before the First World War. That's James Cannon. Like Kautsky's Social Democratic Party of Germany, Debs' Socialist Party of America was not built to be an electoralist party with a civil social voter base. Rather, it was an organized proletarian socialist civil society with an electoral arm. Exactly halfway between the 1919 crisis of Debs' Socialist Party of America and the 2019 publication of Paul Buell's Debs biography stands the failure of an attempt by American socialists to recapture Debs' legacy. Okay, so um, I'm mainly going to be talking about, well, exclusively going to be talking about things that happened in the UK. So if anyone wants to interrupt me and ask for clarification on what like, acronyms are or who people are, please do. Um, because, yeah. <laughs> um, so last year saw the biggest wave of industrial action in UK university history. Um, mobilising about 40,000 workers. So in a dispute normally over pensions, but more, more broadly about the drastic neoliberalisation forced to be enacted on universities in the UK since 2010. Um, on picket lines during the 14 strike, uh, 14 strike days, or in news coverage, something you heard a lot were academics saying something like, we don't want to be in strike, we want to be back in class teaching. So some of this seems to me to be a kind of line that you say to the press, right? Um, it's, it's good tactics, it's good optics to say, um, I would rather be doing my job, right? Um, once on a picket line a few years ago, someone kind of gloriously, but perhaps like bad tactic-wise said, was asked, why are you here? What's this about? And they said, I don't know what it's about. I just love the strike. <laughs> which is like, you know. Um, <laughs> yeah, which is uh, suddenly an energy. But, um, so, but I think there's something, <laughs> there's something underneath this kind of messaging. Uh, it reflects a certain idea of what the role of the academic is and what that means for how they conceive of their work. Their passion makes them special. It sets them apart from other employees in the university. Um, no one would 
For example, right, okay, so say uh, a cleaner in a university is on strike. They don't say we'd rather be cleaning right now, right? They'd say we want to be at work with the implicit kind of assumption that we want to be at work because we need the money, right? Not like I'm doing a special kind of task. Um, it is this difficulty in seeing themselves as workers that places a fundamental limit on the potentials for radical, radical organising in the higher education sector. So I want to talk a little bit about um, new forms of disciplining at work in the university um, and how these are made invisible by the inability to understand academic work as a form of work, the neoliberal suggestion that we be passionate about the specific forms of our exploitation uh, becomes the simultaneous erosion and expansion of the actuality and idea of work itself. Among academics, this tendency comes from an inability to see the university for what it is, a set of institutions to sort workers for their future, assigning roles and legitimising those roles after the fact. Um, and I want to talk a little bit about the contemporary neoliberal university and their place in the struggle for socialism. Um, so, a little bit about higher education policy in the UK. Um, in 2010, a government of the Conservative Party and the Liberal Democrats took power. Um, the Conservatives didn't have a full majority, so they kind of took in the Lib Dems as their junior partners. Um, the big kind of controversy over this was that the Lib Dems had promised not to raise tuition fees. Um, uh, they'd gone around like taking photos and they got a lot of students to vote for them. But then as soon as they got into office, they tripled tuition fees. So <laughs> it goes from, and it, it's actually, it's a very interesting moment in kind of uh, the history of the left because uh, it radicalised a lot of young people very, very quickly. Um, and especially in that pre-Corbyn moment took them away from a parliamentary strategy because they had all thought, actually, we're going to be able to win this really small concession We've got this guy, everyone's really excited about him. No one really cares about him anymore, Nick Clegg. Um, we've got him. <laughs> Do you remember him? Um, we've got him and we're going to, you know, he's going to make sure they don't increase tuition fees. And they do, um, straight away. So a lot of young people, and I was, I think I couldn't vote in that election. Um, so, but I, I felt very excited about the kind of potentials of, of this guy. And then that kind of falls away very, very quickly. And then in the student kind of uprising that happens after it, it's quite like a violent state repression. So it kind of radicalizes a generation really quickly. And just, this isn't so much about the university, but a lot of the people involved in that movement now kind of play key roles in um, Corbyn, Jeremy Corbyn's office or in the Labour Party and momentum in trade unions as well. So uh, it's a lot of kind of crossover with personnel. So the uh, particularly well known is the, res the resistance to the tripling of the fees and the violent repression that this movement faced. But while the repression of the idea of the public university could be felt in the police officer's trench and the state's success in destroying this movement has a longer history, uh, commensurate with the history of neoliberalism itself. So the Tories citing a lack of public money, which turns out later to be just completely ideological attempt to cook the books. Um, universities in the UK move from and the universities of the UK are nearly all um, public. There's like one private one. Um, so they all get the same kind of funding from the government. Some of them, the old ones, have, the, have money they've had forever and have a lot more money than the other ones. But in terms of the money they can receive, there's like quite uh, clear kind of processes for that. Um, so within this system, universities used to get a kind of big amount per large group of students to a system wherein they got money per student which I guess is similar to the school system, right? Um, which is going to encourage um, competition, a huge amount of competition between them. That's always been there. It's been quite a class-stratified higher education system for decades um, in a way that doesn't make sense to uh, a lot of uh, Europeans, for example. So if you're in university in Italy, as far as I understand it, 
you go to your local university or if you want to move out from your parents' home, you go to a university further afield. Um, you're not like, I'm going to this university because it's the best one. And in France, apart from like the Grande École, that's what everyone does. They obviously have those like very elite ones, but everyone else just kind of goes to their local ones. In the UK, it's not like that at all. Um, they extensively cover like the league tables. Um, there are like all these different metrics for working on which university is better. Many of them are like, incredibly dubious. But the main principle here is that um, instead of getting money per like whatever number, 10,000 students, you got uh, money per student. You got 9,000 pounds per student. So... Um, this is a funding disaster for like it's a disaster for long-term planning or like any kind of planning because you don't know how much money you're going to get. Uh, last year there was just a blip in the number of students, so there were fewer babies born that year. So university like departments like nearly got shut down as a result, right? The philosophy department at Hull uh, nearly got shut down. Um, so this is the kind of thing that this engenders, but it also encourages universities to um, imagine what eighteen-year-olds choosing a degree would like and they're not very good at doing this okay so this is an impossible thing to imagine they're not very good at doing this so what they tend to do is they go okay our market competitor has got a library which is open 24 hours there's no reason to think our students want this they haven't done any research on that they they open it up for 24 hours um and then they uh the staff working in the library get switched to worse contracts because they don't have to work for a longer time they outsource the evening stuff right so um this is the kind of stuff that that there's routinely happening um, and the reason behind this, a lot of people were like, why would, the, why would they do this? Why would the Tories do this? Um, they knew that it wasn't going to make a difference. All it did was, okay, so um, in the previous system, um, students paid £3,000, which they had to pay back. Um, and it's not like here, where if you don't pay it back, there are like there seem to be quite serious consequences quite quickly. Um, in the UK, you pay it back once you're earning a certain amount and it effectively acts as a graduate tax. Not to say that that's fair, but it's a different kind of debt to like a credit card debt or student loan debt here. Um, so you would pay £3,000 and that would come off your kind of future salary. The government would pay a lot, of, a lot of money in the background to that. So they would fund that too. All that happened now was that in the change to £9,000, the government put all of the money onto future students future salaries so it made it seem like it was like not public debt but given that the vast majority of these students will never pay back this money it is still public debt right um and it's public debt that is never money that's never going to come back so before it was like a lot of money but money that was being managed now it's like this huge black hole so everyone was like why have they done this uh this makes no financial sense it's, it's bad economics the reason they did it is very clear um because you can make money from universities this way so say um, a university department is at risk of shutting down, a university itself is at risk of shutting down, and that's, what's hap- that's what happened in several universities last year, um, kind of because of the, these years of cuts to funding. Um, you then can have a private company come in and take over elements of, of the university. So say they've built a lovely new gym to attract these 18-year-olds, and then the 18-year-olds don't show up. And they're like, what are we going to do? They're like, oh, we'll lease this gym to this like, private company. They'll come in and manage it. Or we'll like, um, outsource this thing and outsource this thing. So there's money to be made for uh, private companies within the universities without having to privatise them in kind of one fell swoop because that would be uh, largely unpopular. Um, people would be like, this is a, there would be resistance to it, whereas this makes it seem like it is mismanagement on the part of the universities. Um, so as you can expect... This doesn't um, actually drive up standards at all. An argument for increasing fees would be like, this is going to make 
universities work harder. It doesn't at all. So it leads to outsourcing of cleaning and support staff and increasingly of academic staff as well. Um, lecture halls are really cramped. There's not enough room for all of the students in a lot of the universities. And even at kind of older, wealthier universities, Durham is one example. So Durham is considered like after Oxford and Cambridge, like third kind of most important whatever, uh, it, uh, <laughs> it runs its core lectures for undergrads at like 8am um, in the morning just to physically fit them in because there isn't the infrastructure for this number of students. Um, so pay is also stagnated. And there's another kind of issue here, which is that one of the metrics for measuring university success is student assessment of the teaching. Okay, so... This is a kind of distortion of... Um, it's quite interesting, and I think it connects to, to your paper of the, of the student movement, of the demands for a democratic university. It seems like a good idea that students have some kind of a say in their learning, right? That seems like good. No one would disagree with that. But the way this actually happens is that in their final year, students fill in these forms, which don't really reflect learning that much. They just say, like, did you enjoy it? Uh, did you have too much work? This kind of stuff, right? Um, and on that... Um, universities go higher up in the league tables, which means they get more or less funding. Um, there's a fundamental tension as well underneath this one, which is that if you're buying a, a kind of experience as a commodity, which you're doing with a degree, if you understand yourself as a consumer, when you buy something, it's supposed to be fun, right? Like it's supposed to be not like thrilling, but it's supposed to be pleasant. It's supposed to be simple, um, like kind of, it's, it's not supposed to be troubling. And the difficulty with education is that it is uh, not always immediately fun, it's often troubling in a way which is kind of like productive and 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 uh, like and this isn't to say that like oh learning uh, has to be like a very traditional and like not kind of there can't be elements of like fun or play within it because that's obviously true but like sometimes for example if you're studying philosophy you have to stay up all night reading Kant because you have to do that right to be able to understand something else and that is not fun and there's a tension between that and the demands of uh, a consumer on a product which is that it be fun so you can't actually learn in this situation. Um, okay, so until last year, resistance to this was quite tepid. Um, there are a couple of strikes, many less than one day long. Um, after the initial wave of resistance, student organising dropped off to nearly nothing. Um, the once mighty student unions ended up as little more than gleeful box tickers, willing participants in marketisation, greedily, greedily hoping that their university might end up the best or the winner of a gold award for teaching excellence. They have these um, medals you get bronze, silver or gold um, and, and many even demanded that the democratic bodies of student unions be replaced with online consultation um, so at my at my students union it's amazing, my students union has done something which is uh, very interesting if, if you're into like, political theory kind of amazingly bold, they have banned politics uh, at University of Essex they've banned politics so um, uh, they had elections, so have elections every year, and you, people run to be sabbatical officers. They get paid um, somewhere between like eighteen and twenty-five grand uh, to work as a student campaigner for a year. Um, and historically, they've been really kind of crucial in, in student activism. But they have banned any kind of mention of politics and even policies. So you can't say, you know, you can see sometimes that students, students some students are worried because they're charities, they can't talk about uh, doing kind of party politics. So they often will kind of talk kind of in a very liberal way about uh, mental health or about student welfare or like library opening times. 
my university has gone a step further and banned talking about any policies at all. They said we did a consultation with students and we worked out exactly what they want by aggregating all of their demands um, and the student union officers are elected to carry those out. So that's the kind of state of things. And student unions enjoy this, right? They buy into this kind of myth. Um, there's a problem with personnel there. So you're elected into this role as like a 20 year old. Um, the staff have been there for a very, very long time. And it's very hard, unless you're very, very committed, you're kind of, you've been caterized basically to go up against someone who's much older than you and say like, hold up, this is not how we have to do things. To read up on charity law, to find out, um, to find out the, the stuff they're saying is kind of like ideological claptrap. Like, to be able to do that, you have to, be an organiser and a lot of them aren't um, so they just kind of love marketization um, because they buy into this idea that it drives up standards and in a sense they might not actually be wrong so say you're uh, at a university which has a chance of rising up the league tables um, and you can fill in surveys to do that to improve its place in the league tables if it's higher up and it has a better reputation you do perhaps have a better chance of getting a job right so you, there is a kind of like there is you know, uh, there is a gain to be had there as well. Um, okay, so, right, things that very little had happened for a long time, but last year there was a huge strike. Um, so from the majority of universities, there's two pension schemes in the UK, I won't bore you with all of the details. One for universities before, there's two big waves of university expansion in the UK, one in the 60s and one in the 90s. Um, so in the 60s, some new universities are built, before then you only have the really old ones and 19th century kind of technical colleges that have expanded, so universities like Manchester. Um, and then in the 60s, they build um, a lot of new universities. Um, and then they build more in the 90s. Everyone who worked at a university before the 90s expansion was affected by this pensions change. Um, so this would see academics losing out on really significant sums during retirement. Um, the dispute is still ongoing. Um, um, so while the mobilisation was huge um, and even on the pickets there was like a sense that people were replaying or recreating the university um, people would have seminars on the picket and you know everyone would talk about Adorno whatever um, it often felt like very gestural um, because very few academics outside of some departments were engaged with it and they have an idea of the university which I'm going to kind of talk a little bit about which to me seems wrong um, and actually I need to get this there's this brilliant uh, story of this tension in the university and how it's kind of visible from the very first day so this is about this book is about a dispute at the University of Warwick um, which was one of the kind of 60s universities um, I'll talk about that in a bit but okay uh, this section is called Woke Neoliberalism and the Infantilising University. Um, so the expansion of higher education in the UK from tiny portions of 18-year-olds, less than 1% at the beginning of the last century, um, to around half of 18-year-olds now, has had really significant effect. Working-class working young people are no longer shut off from advanced learning. This is not something insignificant, but alongside this change has come a securitisation of the university and the increased use of surveillance. In fact, this dual history is traceable to the expansion of public universities in the mid-20th century. The University of Warwick, later cited by Tony Blair as his favourite university for its partnership with business, uh, had been imagined when it was in its planning stages as this fantastic new thing serving its local community in Coventry. Um, which at the time it seems to have quite a radical council. Um, the reality on its opening was really different. It ended up being run to serve corporate interests. 
uh, despite its reliance on public funding, despite the kind of huge amount of public money that goes into it. And in a scandal in its first years, it was found to be spying on the political activities of students and staff. Um, so this process is accelerated in the contemporary university where students' attendance data is monitored and software is piloted that allows management to look at how long students spend using online resources or going to the campus gym, all in the name of their well-being. So it said, uh, if you're a GTA, uh, you're, you, um, so like a graduate teaching associate, so um, you you have to make sure the students like tap in. So they tap in at the beginning of every class. And if you're an international student, um, if your attendance falls beneath a certain rate, you can be deported. Um, and this stuff was also piloted at universities, which are home to more working class and kind of students of color. Um, so I did my undergraduate degree at Cambridge and they really didn't care if you showed up or not, right? Uh, it was expected that you go off and kind of do your own studying, which Perhaps it's like issues for like student welfare to some extent. People might not know you're there. But it meant that you had um, these, this kind of um, expansive and non-instrumental space for learning. And that is completely denied to students at these, um, at these less prestigious institutions where you tap in. Um, there are security gates everywhere. So the university is shut off from the rest of the community. If you want to do an event uh, for local people, like you, you can't. Um, they can't come in. Um, and then this point about the software being managed. So universities provide Wi-Fi. They also have their own internets, their own servers. Um, there are the software available whereby uh, students, not only attendance data, but engagement with online resources and, and, and parts of the university can be monitored. And the idea is that this might flag up something if they're, if they're unwell, but you could see clearly how this might be used, especially for students with, um, uh, who are like uh, international students, migrant students. Um, Universities focus on league table measurements, invest huge amounts of money in advertising their programmes and in career services for their students. From the very beginning of their degrees, students are reminded of the importance of filling in for the feedback surveys which will improve their institution's rankings and to register with a career service and to start thinking about what they do when they have graduated. Um, this makes the experience of university totally instrumental. Students want good grades to get good jobs, which of course like, don't actually exist, um, or don't exist for the kind of students who feel this like, especially burning need to get them, right? Um, which, uh, which they've been promised. They've been promised this all their lives. Um, higher education becomes not about gaining specific knowledge or skills, but about getting a certain degree classification and getting a certain job as a result. And this makes relations between um, students and lecturers really, really um, difficult. Um, students are incredibly anxious. Um, they see you as part of this kind of commodity they've bought. Um, and it's really hard to uh, make them engage with work. There's also the fact that they have much, much less funding than they had a few years ago. So their rent, in the UK, you get like a, a loan from the government to cover your living costs. This loan doesn't cover the cost of rent in most university towns. So if you are a working class student, you have to have several jobs. Um, to cover your rent, let alone do anything else. Um, and again, this is mu has much more of an impact at uh, less prestigious universities. So when I was an um, undergrad, I got the maximum kind of amount of like, a, it was then a grant as well, they've changed it, um, you could get. And that also meant you got like a six grand bursary from Cambridge, so you didn't have to work, um, which was great. But this is not something that like is ha happens at other universities. Um, so... Individualist um, neoliberal identity politics encourages this kind of behaviour and liberal academics, the vast majority of whom are from academic families themselves and see them and can't really understand um, the processes behind them or have these kind of end up with these quite patronising attitudes where they kind of think 
Implicitly, they're saying this like lovely uh, humanities, liberal arts education is good for people like me, but it's actually fine that there's a deterioration of the ability to learn because some students just need to get jobs, right? Um, it kind of legitimizes this, this instrumental view um, because to them, working class people and people of colour getting ahead means them getting certain jobs. They can point to there's this many CEOs or this many people in these roles uh, who were once poor or, or who are like of colour and, and that's enough to say that we've done our jobs as educators. Um, so, okay. Um, universities encourage students to see themselves as part of a family. Um, it's, this is like a very common kind of bit of ad, ad speak in UK universities. Um, and it's probably intended to attract students and get more money, um, but it's really revealing because students are treated like children um, within the university and actually has some policy outcomes too. So the previous universities minister uh, floated the idea that parents should be able to call up universities and get um, medical information about their children. Um, which is an incredible breach of privacy for people who are legal adults, right? Um, so the kind of uh, woke neoliberalism that a lot of these academics buy into replaces democratic forms with technocratic and technologically managed ones. So we see that in the student unions banning politics. See success as individuals um, getting success themselves, expressed as getting high-paying jobs. And um, it also extends capitalism's removal of rank. So this is a, a feature of capitalism from the beginning, that the, the dissolving of uh, rank and privilege. And this seems like a good thing, right? It's good that there are like no longer sumptuary laws. We can wear whichever clothes we want, right? This seems like good. But um, neoliberalism extends this into an attack on expertise and professionalism. So of course, we don't want to say that uh, a lecturer is doing a really kind of specially skilled job um, but it is a job of a different kind, which requires certain um, kind of certain kind of expertise. It doesn't make them special just because they were good at school, but um, there is like expertise kind of involved in it. And neoliberalism says this expertise is a myth. Anyone could do this job as a way of uh, leading to the erosion of working conditions. Um, and the National Union of Students also kind of bought into, the, bought into this attitude. It did a report on. This was an amazing piece of like liberal technocracy. Okay, so it spent um, thousands and thousands of pounds to do research into poverty within higher education. And it basically it found out that some students are poor, which obviously everyone knew already. <laughs> um, uh, but its report was entitled something like, how can we make sure students get in and get on in, uni uh, in university, i.e. how can they get certain jobs, rather than thinking about what is the purpose of university. Um, I can talk a little about this one example. So I don't know if you have this here, but um, lectures are recorded almost by default in the UK. Um, and it pits academics and students against each other. Um, it's obviously incredibly bad to have lectures recorded straight away um, because you're just like automating yourself out of a job, especially for like core undergraduate lectures, right? So you give a lecture series, say you're giving a lecture series on like the history of the left in the US. Uh, you give that lecture series once, as a historical thing, unless someone produces like a groundbreaking book, which they probably do every five years, right? That lecture series can be used again for five years. Um, so it's going to lead to like a complete destruction of, of the um, ability. It's, it can be used for strike breaking. Um, there's also questions about academic freedom. In the UK, there's a specific issue about prevent. Uh, I don't know if you've heard of that. That's a really, it's a really Islamophobic and racist law whereby students or anyone who comes into contact with any public services who are at risk of um, 
radicalization, which um, turns out is just doing anything that anyone finds a bit suspicious, um, and haven't committed any crime, can um, be kind of a subject to all kinds of police powers. Um, and this will, this has implications for recording lectures in classes as standard, right? Um, so, um, but a lot of lecturers and a lot of students don't see the kind of uh, structural issues with this. They think it's good that lectures are recorded. It's better kind of, it means that students who can't come to lectures um, can access them rather than thinking what are the structural barriers to students accessing those lectures, right? So normally the university will reply something like, it's good for disabled students. I'm like, well, which ones? It's a huge group of people, right? Uh, you can't just say it's good for disabled students, like, and what kind of support are we prioritizing? What are the actual barriers that we have in place? It's not just the fact that there are lectures. Um, okay, so um, I still have quite a lot to say. Is that okay? When do you want me to stop? Um, I mean, it might be good. I was giving leeway because our third speaker was gone, but it might be nice to just wrap up with yep. a few thoughts and then open up the conversation and then you can throw in the stuff yep. that you didn't get to say in the discussion. That's fine. Yeah. So I uh, just one thing about uh, experience of work at the university. So a point to know about academics is that they haven't normally had other jobs. Um, like they might have worked alongside things during their studies, but they have very rarely been doing anything else. Um, and in the UK, at least, they tend to think they have it worse than anyone. They're like, we're, we have so many difficult things. We're so precarious. And like, to some extent, this is true. There's been a real erosion of, of conditions. But it's no different to other sectors. Um, and they buy into this idea of their job as a passion um, and not a job with a certain function for capital. And there is this double character to education, right? So education can be something which is transformative. Um, and I think... Uh, a lot of people have experienced that, right? Uh, learning about the world radicalizes you. But it is also education as institutions, as actually existing kind of social institutions, is has a very specific function under capitalism, which is to sort people into different roles, uh, different jobs for the future, and justify that by saying, well, you didn't do well enough at school, right? Um, and there's been a lot of research at the moment in the UK because it hasn't been discussed as much as I think here about the kind of school-to-prison pipeline um, especially for uh, students of colour and how this relates to exclusion. So we've basically had almost all of our secondary schools privatised and there's been a huge expansion in, in exclusions. And if you get excluded in um, your year of your GCSE, so that's the kind of basic qualification, there's a 1% chance of you actually achieving them. So this is the kind of way in which this is this is then like justified. These structural inequalities are justified after the fact. Um, okay, um, I might just... There's just this brilliant. Actually, I can do it in the. I can do it in the questions. Um, so to sum up, I think um, the strike was very important, um, but uh, it also pointed to the inability of academics to theorise their position uh, within capital and theorise the university because of um, a kind of neoliberal condescension towards working class people um, in the name of like a kind of like get that bread ethos and um, and uh, kind of lack of knowledge about work and employment and organising um, and an over overestimation of, of their position. So since then there have been several strike ballots and they have all failed. The UK has quite regressive trade union laws. You have to get over quite a high number of turnout votes so you have to get I think over 50% turnout for you to be able to strike um, and it failed on all of those 
So again, it was a kind of prioritization of, of the gestural moment, this moment of big resistance rather than an ongoing kind of struggle. Um, so if you've organized in a workplace, you know that you have like a spreadsheet with everyone's name and whether they're a union member and what you're going to get them to come to next. There's none of this kind of, this, this seems very strange to lots of academics when you suggest it to them, like who, you know, who's managing this information, who, how are we going to make sure people come to the next event? So a kind of overestimation of their, of their position was one of the weaknesses of it. And also just the kind of like, uh, yeah, that, that, which comes from their, their like class kind of composition and also the fact that they are by nature conformists, right? They're people who've been very, very good at school and that's where they've got to where they are now, right? They're people that think if you put your hand enough quickest, you can somehow save the world. And, and I don't think we can, un- I mean, it sounds like a kind of like silly psychological basic response to this, but I genuinely think it is quite significant. These are people who are naturally kind of conformists and even more so as funding for education for higher education gets reduced and conformity is more rewarded 